And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Beyond cool. Frigid, you might say. I'm I'm sitting here in, like, multiple layers of clothing and multiple blankets. Because <laughs> it's January in Chicago and it sucks. It's been colder, but it, it just yeah. really got to you today. It, yeah. I was doing better when it was, like, negative 30 out, but today when it's, like, 14 degrees. So just think warmer thoughts. Think, you know, summer breeze. Think uh, playing outdoors in the sun, running around. Uh, a nice swim on a hot day. Yeah. Think warm thoughts. Like all of that is really far away. <laughs> it's months and months. And you told me I can't skip months. <laughs> so I guess we should just get on with this episode to distract myself, huh? Okay. I guess continuing our series of uh, World's Fairs. It is a series now. Officially. We've got a second one. Uh, we are talking about the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, also known as the St. Louis World's Fair. Hooray! The other one. The other one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the one that got a movie made about it. Not really. Not really. It has very little to do with the fair. You're talking about Meet Me in St. Louis. Yes. 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 The movie that is like four hours long and the last three minutes take place at the fair. Yeah, but they talk about it the whole the time. The whole time. <laughs> St. Louis World's Fair, an international exposition, mm -hmm. as we talked about then, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and it took place from like uh, the end of April to the beginning of December in 1904. Sometimes they go like into other years. They keep going. Mm -hmm. Relatively short in some ways. Only six months. Uh, was built upon almost 1,300 acres. Uh, it was the the largest fair in, like, area up to that date. So put on your walking shoes. Mm -hmm. So you can walk out of St. Louis and somewhere better. There's probably someone listening from St. Louis who's <laughs> very upset at you right now. Uh, it had 15,000 buildings, like over 19 and a half million visitors uh, in those six months. Uh, there are 62 countries that participated, 43 of, like, 45 states, territories, mm -hmm. whatever they were titled at the time. <laughs> uh, and it cost at least $15 million, uh, to to finance. That's a lot of numbers. That's a lot of numbers. That's a lot of big numbers. Uh, I was just going to say that that attendance mm -hmm. figure is equal to one quarter of the U.S. population at the time. Seems pretty accurate. And again, some of that's people coming, you know, five times or whatever, but still, j just as a point of comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I found a um, copy of the guidebook. The official Ooh. guidebook has been, like, scanned, and the entire thing is available uh, online, uh, which is very interesting, and there's several times I'm going to, like, pull up information from it. Mm -hmm. But my favorite parts about it were, like, seeing stuff about... The tickets that were available. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like 50 cents a day, or you can buy like an annual pass, which is like, and the annual passes <laughs> were like broken though. For something that only lasts six months, do you have an annual pass? Well, and they had different ones though. They had like the annual pass that was like 50 visits. Mm hmm. And that was like $15 or something. And then there was like the annual pass that ran the entirety of the actual fair. Unlimited. Basically, yeah. yeah. Do they not know what annual meant? Did they not invent that definition until like 1910 or something? There's a lot of things in that guidebook where I'm like, do you know what that means? <laughs> 
But I really enjoyed, like, kind of, like, the price breakdown. And there was also just, like, really interesting information about, like, renting wheelchairs. Yeah. Except they called them, they didn't call them wheelchairs. What did they call them? It was very, it was, like. Man strollers. Rolling chairs or rolling car. I don't know. They were talking about wheelchairs, but it was, like, about how to rent them. There's another thing about, um, you know, if you wanted to have. Uh, someone like hold your purchases that you mm-hmm. could pick them up later. There was right under that was like baby depositing. Like Ooh. if you wanted them to watch your baby, <laughs> like here's here's where you go and where you leave your baby for the day. <laughs> yeah, just babies hanging in little sacks on one of those motorized tracks, like at the dry cleaner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't lose your baby check don't, stub. Don't leave, lose that claim ticket. It's really important. <laughs> But yeah, there's lots of fun stuff in there if people are interested. The fair was hosted uh, to celebrate the centennial of the 1804 Louisiana Purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're like, oh, I remember hearing about that, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> the U.S. bought land from France that contained parts of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Louisiana, and parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan. So uh, a third of the continental U.S. <laughs> by yes. area. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what's all encompassed in the Louisiana <laughs> Purchase. Not just Louisiana, like you would want to assume automatically. Well, the French called it all Louisiana at yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've since condensed it into one little area. <laughs> So, uh, the idea came about in, like, it was, like, 1898. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fair took place in 1904. But in 1898, they the idea was either, well, Kansas City or St. Louis could host, since they were, like, the central location within the territory that was purchased. Mm-hmm. And originally, they wanted to do it, like, a year earlier than it was, but... Because of when things fell, 1904 is when it happened. Uh, the official guidebook does say that in in order to understand and appreciate the fair you have to like spend an entire summer in st louis but another thing i love from this guidebook is it's also like but if you live in 300 miles and you got 50 dollars, you can do it in 10 days (laughs) (laughs) and it actually gives you like a breakdown of what your 50 dollars goes to Mm -hmm. and like an itinerary (laughs) which is pretty great so like past world's fairs it was huge. So an entire summer was suggested. There's a whole big world out it's there whole big world. to put into St. Yeah. Louis. During the year of the fair, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition actually took the place of an annual St. Louis exposition. Like they had, it was basically like a giant county fair or like mm-hmm. country fair. Uh, and it happened every year and it was, you know, agriculture, trade and scientific exhibitions and stuff and exhibits. They held it annually from, like, the 1850s till 1902. Mm-hmm. And then it stopped from 1903 to 1904 for the fair. And then it, like, couldn't come back. Well, we're not <laughs> topping this. What's the point? <laughs> and, you know, it was very much like like a county fair that we're kind of known for, you know of nowadays, with, like, food and uh, livestock, plants. Um, Gallagher performing comedy. Yes, there were ample theaters and... and uh, <laughs> Ample amphitheaters. And, yes, yes. The one in St. Louis was known for having like a three-story chicken palace. 
It's basically like a giant chicken coop that the chickens ran around And who in. is the emperor of the chickens? I would love to know. No. Um, is it Colonel Sanders? Uh, during um, the Civil War, the their annual fair was also interrupted for a, a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the fairgrounds were turned into like an army base. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Did the chickens fight for the Union or the Confederacy? I do not know. I would love to know what side the chickens were on. They probably just all got eaten, but... Lincoln sending an envoy to the chicken palace. <laughs> well, after that, the annual country fair came back, um, and they ended up building um, a large zoological garden, too, in addition to it. Uh, it was modeled after, like, European zoological buildings, and it had a huge outdoor aviary mm-hmm. um, and various pens and habitats and stuff and it was enlarged over the years uh uh, they had horse racing and it had like the first automobile race in st louis Mm -hmm. but then it had to stop because of the world's fair right and it did not really come back and horse horse racing was very big for them it's a big draw yeah 1905 it was like banned in missouri (laughs) so that probably didn't help them either they were like well what's the point but the, the ground that all that was on was where the St. Louis Fair was as well. They, like, mm-hmm. built on top of it and expanded. and So so those 143 acres were the center of, of then the, the thousands of acres. Yes, we're part of it. A part I'm of it. about center. Yeah. Part, part yeah. of it. And then those, those gra- original grounds were actually uh, purchased by the city of St. Louis several years later. But anyway, it's just an interesting thing to know is that there was like a fair always there beforehand. Mm-hmm. And never again. And never again. Salt the earth. Gallagher will have to find somewhere else. <laughs> uh, much like what we talked about with uh, like the Century of Progress Fair, many of the large buildings that were built and like all the small ones were meant to be temporary. Mm-hmm. They were not meant to last more than a couple years. Um, it was not uncommon for them to have to like fix them even in six months because they were deteriorating because it was just like plaster of paris and hemp fibers like uh-huh. on like wood oh okay i'm glad on like wood like a wood something. frame and then they're just like throwing the stuff on it you know um and this one didn't catch fire you're, did, sh- you're sure far as i know okay. did not catch fire uh a few places that did survive that were meant to like live on mm-hmm was the Palace of Fine Arts building. Um, that was uh, designed by Cass Gilbert. Uh, he did the uh, New York City Woolworth building, the St. Louis Public Library, U.S. Supreme Court building, Minneapolis State Capitol, Detroit Public Library Main Branch, and <laughs> the James Scott Memorial Fountain on Belle Isle in Detroit. That dude racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles. Yeah. 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 So Belle Isle, we mentioned in one of our Disney episodes because the uh, carousel at Magic Kingdom was originally from Belle Isle and and then got mm-hmm. put there. So I said, like, oh, that sounds familiar. That's why. We might have also mentioned the U.S. Supreme Court a time or two, but uh, uh, whatever. Uh. <laughs> the Palace of Fine Arts is now the St. Louis Art Museum. Oh, okay. The administration building also still stands, and that is part of uh, Washington, Washington University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the flight cage of the aviary is apparently now part of the St. Louis Zoological Park. I thought that said fight cage. 
Yes, the fight cage <laughs> where they all fought each other. Like birds, you had to fight birds off. Oh, I thought it was just like, like bird on bird violence. No, 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 you had to go like fight an ostrich. Two rounds against the vulture twins. <laughs> yeah. They can read each other's mind. It's very dangerous. Another thing that still stands, well, doesn't still stand there, but <laughs> uh, something that has survived survived the fair. Transcended the fair. Is uh, a Jain temple that stood within the India Pavilion. After the fair, it was supposed to be uh, dismantled and uh, apparently shipped back to India, but it was not. Mm-hmm. Kind of, no one really knew what happened to it. <laughs> They um, forgot? But they just forgot this they're, temple they're, they're, in the middle of well, Missouri? No, so it it disappeared from there. What? But like... Did Carmen okay. San Diego come to the fair? In 1957, the San Sochi Hotel was built in Las Vegas. In 1963, it was changed to Castaways, um, a Polynesian island-themed hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow, people do not know how... Uh-huh. It is completely unknown how this ended up there, but the Jane Temple structure ended up there, <laughs> you know, like 50-some years later, and was reconstructed next to the pool, and they called it, uh, and they, like, themed it to Polynesia. No one knows how, like, where it was for 50 years, how it got there, but suddenly this this temple is like the tiki bar <laughs> and it, it stood there like they painted it and like decorated and stuff. And it stayed there until, uh, in 1980, the members of the Jane center of Southern California, which was only established in 1979 had come to Las Vegas and they noticed the temple. Like they, they <laughs> hey, just, uh, I was checking out the pool and you're not going to believe this. But... Yeah, some of them approached the hotel manager uh, to be like, Hey, (laughs) we'd like this. Uh, And he offered to have the value of it appraised, and then they could buy it. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of like, uh, but that's like a historical significant thing? That's just a tiki bar to you. Like, what? Also, you're kind of literally desecrating a temple. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, so Jane Center ended up requesting the state of Howard Hughes to donate it to him, them. <laughs> and in, uh, but then in 1987, the Castaway Hotel was bought by Steve Wynn and he demolished it to make way for the Mirage, which is what stands there now. <sighs> the temple was boxed up. It was acquired for the Jane Center, uh, through a former president of the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1995, it was transported to LA. In 2004, they started reconstruction. Uh, and this this temple is like very large. It's like 10,000 pounds. That's a lot of tiki bar. Uh, it was put into like the, as like the centerpiece of the Jane Center, which opened in 2008. Oh, congratulations. So they did get it. They set it up 104 years later. <laughs> uh but I'd really love to know how it ended up in Las Vegas. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. That, that's uh, the next Hangover movie. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's it's a weird prequel. It's they, about Zach Galifianakis' no, okay, grandpa. Okay. So it's uh, it's a hot tub time machine meets Hangover. <laughs> yes. Yes. They end up in that hot tub, go back in time, and like 
they're either the reason it ends up in Las Vegas or they like witness it. Yeah. 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 Get out of Hollywood. Mm hmm. Yep. First, we'll have to watch those movies we just mentioned. Yeah, I've not seen any of those. None of them. <laughs> A few other, uh, like, artifacts. Uh, city symbol of Birmingham, Alabama, called the Vulcan statue. And that is why Alabamians <laughs> live long and prosper. It, different Vulcan. Are you sure? Y- yes. Okay. It's the largest cast iron statue in the world. <laughs> and uh, was created as Birmingham's entry into the fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was returned to them and is now so, like in their city. Um, but After yeah. spending about 40 years in St. Petersburg, no <laughs> one could tell why. Also, in connecting uh, to another episode of ours, the large organ we talked about in uh, our Philadelphia episode. The world's biggest gallbladder, yes. That large nope, organ. Nope, nope, nope. The like musical organ. Oh. Yes. The one that's inside Macy's. Mm-hmm. That is from this fair. Oh, yeah, yeah, In yeah, case yeah. you forgot. That's the one. Uh, another thing from our Philadelphia episode is the Liberty Bell. Mm-hmm. The Liberty Bell was at the St. Louis World's Fair as well. Uh, it was one of the, the few trips it actually took. This World's Fair also uh, had what we also saw in the Century of Progress, where there were uh, exhibits of countries, mm-hmm. of people, yeah. of culture. Uh, except... It was really, ra- really, really, really racist here. <laughs> like, uh-huh. so, so not so much sponsored by those peoples. Not so much. Not so much. Not really representing themselves in, in an honest and uh, on an uh, equal footing with everyone uh, else. Uh uh-uh. No, no, that's not the sort of angle they were taking. The guidebook is an interesting thing to look at for this. <laughs> It is listed under a whole section of anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it exhibits... So a, a people zoo. Yeah. A people zoo. Yep. People zoos. That, 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 that is very much what it is. That is what it is called. Uh, and the guidebook says, exhibits of anthropology uh, aim to represent man as the creature and a worker. <laughs> Right there, like first sentence of it. The two things you can aspire to be. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to uh, pull some like quotes here sure. from the guidebook. Sure. These are not my words. <laughs> These are words from a 1904 book. The ethnological exhibit includes representatives of 23 Indian tribes, a family of 9 of 9 Ainus, the Aborigines of Japan, seven Patagonian giants, and many <laughs> other strange people all housed in their peculiar dwellings. <laughs> How giant are we talking, though? <laughs> Among the strangest people... Six foot three! An incredible feat! <laughs> Among the strangest people assembled are the Patwa Pygmies from Central Africa. The various Filipino tribes constitute a complete anthropological display in themselves. <laughs> Look, they have discovered the use of tools. We're going to get to the Phil- the Philippines, which is like, my gosh. Could these noises could- constitute some sort of language that we do not yet understand? It's like, it's it's so painful. It's so painful to read the, like, to look at what they wrote. So they uh, had a listing in their, like, anthropology section um, mm-hmm. for the government Indian school. Oh. A model of an Indian school. Sure. 
as soon as you know that's going to be there, that's that's a super big problem. Uh-huh. Uh, the, this is the, the, like, cultural genocide era. era. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like we, we've taken all your land, and now your culture is against the yep, law. Yep, The wording of their description here. Uh, across the east front of the building, the young Indians of both sexes, neatly clad, are taught in classrooms. And across the corridor, the old craftsmen ply their primitive trades. Teepees and wigwams accompany the space in front of the building, and here the adult Indians of several tribes dwell in true Indian style. I'm sorry, we call that crisscross applesauce oh. nowadays. You're not allowed to say that. Like, it's just so incredibly <laughs> racist and mm-hmm. bad so bad the thing is it's not even like the worst <laughs> it's not even the worst do we have to rank them though like it can just be bad it can just be bad but i really i'm i couldn't even finish reading the entire section of their their philippine encampment mm-hmm. the fair was banking on it uh-huh. the philippines recently like became like a u.s territory yeah uh Due to the Spanish-American War. Yes. It was uh, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam. Guam. Guam was part of that package deal. Uh, But they like... Thanks, Spain. They like dove into using the Philippines as a marketing ploy. Mm -hmm. They spent a million dollars to on 47 acres to build a giant display for over a thousand... Um, 20 years ago, Philippine that was people. the size of the entire state fair. Yeah. 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 And you want to, this idea was planned by uh, the Secretary of War, William H. Taft, when he was civil <laughs> governor of the islands. Future president of the United yeah. States and yeah. chief justice. You can thank him for this. <laughs> the, the guidebook, it's pages about this the philippine encampment 47 acres there's lots of and philippine encampment to see they 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 break it down by like the encampment though like they they chose to come here uh-huh. and, and set up shop uh-huh. this framing of it you can go read the whole thing but a, a, a few of the things that stood out mm-hmm. just just the wording and i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher some of these uh, so about the Vizian village, they said it's people of artistic temperament. <laughs> the women in this tribe are very pretty, and there is a number of girls who can speak English. Our finest phrenologists have determined their, their capabilities. I'm like, what do all the girls in the other tribes <laughs> think? Goodness. These other tribes, they're a bunch of dogs. <laughs> the Moros of Mindanao. The description of this area goes on to say, uh, the two tribes of Moros are represented. Little is known about the island they come from. Uh, representatives are some of the most savage, or representatives uh, from this area are come from some of the most savage tribes that have been brought to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. For two and a half century, these people made life miserable for the Spaniards. Among other things they say, but basically like they're, they're terrible pirates and they made life really bad for those people who, you know, invaded them. If you want to know more about their island, you could probably ask them. Right? That's what, that's what I'm like, they're like, little is not, I'm like, you have people there from it. You could be like, hey, can you teach us, like, tell us about where you're from? It was a long boat ride and then train ride to St. Louis. I assume you had opportunities. Like, also... They just constructed some type of structure that is supposed to represent where these people are from. Yeah. Yet little is known. What? (laughs) 
what they they really pushed is uh what they call probably the most interesting single feature of the exposition is the Ingarote village. This includes three tribes, and then they go on to talk about the the Bontoks are the headhunters. They are the dog eaters of whom so much has been written in the newspapers. Who is writing these newspapers? <laughs> like, oh! and I found an article actually uh, that spoke with um, some of the descendants of people who were there. One lady was talking about how, like, yes, like, eating dog meat was a cultural thing, but it was for, like, super, like, religious Mm -hmm. moments. And so's horses in Europe. That's not weird. Well, here's the thing, though. She's like, like, it's something that happens, like, maybe once a year, (laughs) if that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But the people who were at the fair were basically only given dog meat to eat the entire time. Right, because people paid their 50 cents. Yes. You got to give them what they came to see. Yep. Oh, boy. So there's a whole lot more about that stuff. And that's just like a, a, a snippet. Uh-huh. Uh, and as I said, you can go look at that guidebook. There's also, um, I found some links to like souvenir photos. And various things of um, some of these exhibit villages. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the the ceremonial dress they were provided with was, you know, white people's idea of what would sell, not actually, like, their own... Probably not what they always wore, no. No. Um, But we'll definitely be linking some of that if you are interested in learning more about how incredibly racist 1904 was. (laughs) I would love to see some sort of, like, parallel world where, say, like, Thailand conquered the world and and we have to see what lederhosen look like to Thai capitalists. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There were, like, you know, exhibits for Holland and, Mm -hmm. you know, know, Ireland and Austria and stuff, but... Just even, like, looking at the descriptions they have for those places, they're so, like, small. Mm -hmm. And they're not, like, finding the thing to draw you in of look at these people and what they do and how strange they are. I I would imagine, please correct me because you read this, but it's more like, hey, come and see the the wonderful industry of... The, the people of Austria the art or art and the culture. Hey, if if you're if you've got family from Holland, come connect to your roots here. And yeah. A bit more of that than look at these people. <laughs> look at these weirdos over here. Yeah. They eat dog because it's all we're giving them to eat. What are you thinking? You're you're making this situation. Yeah. Mo- moving on from that. Sure, um, sure. for for now. I want to talk about uh an interesting lady. I love interesting ladies. Uh, there's this lady named Florence Haywood or Hayward. Uh, she was a f- very well-known freelance writer in St. Louis. And she negotiated a position in the all-male board of commissioners, mm-hmm. which was first off like, yay, like good job. <laughs> she um, destroyed the all-male <laughs> board of commissioners. It no longer existed. Well, she... Uh, learned that one of the potential contractors uh, that they were going to use was not reputable and warned them, like, hey, you shouldn't use this person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like shoddy work and charging double and stuff like that. 
So the uh, former mayor of St. Louis and governor of Missouri, uh, David R. Francis, who was president of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition Council, I think it's company, uh, appointed her to roving commissioner to Europe. <laughs> so she got to travel overseas promoting the fair. All right, fellas, I know you don't want that dame on the commission, but uh, let me tell you, we're sending her on a boat. <laughs> She's going to be gone for weeks, months, I tell you, months. No well, skin off your nose. Uh, that was, that's actually like a really cool thing. You get to like promote and try to like bring stuff. I mean, that's yeah, like a great I, position. I would not mind having that job. Uh, it's so great that the fair had a board of lady managers who who were supposed to oversee everything having to do with like women involved in the fair and they were really pissed that she got like promoted to this without their knowledge we're supposed to be managing all the ladies <laughs> yes uh so francis went to england in 1902 uh and there she acquired gifts from queen victoria and received many historical items uh from the vatican that were able Ooh. to be shown and she was then put in start in charge of historical exhibits in the anthropology division so putting up displays, taking those items that she was, like, given to show mm -hmm. and, like, setting them up. And she had a lot to do with, like, driving interest in the fair, getting a lot of um, artifacts to be shown. But her, like, role in this almost completely unacknowledged. Of course. Uh, Francis, the the president of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition Company, uh, later published a history of the fair in 1913 and left her out completely. Well, she spent all that time <laughs> just talking to Queen Victoria, not doing the real work. You know, just getting, like, a cast of a pope's head and stuff. Like, whatever. <laughs> Who wants to see one of those? Those guys aren't very attractive. I Let's be honest. Yeah. Would you smooch a pope? Not, not many. Not many of them. What about young young Pope? Young Pope is different. <laughs> I would smooch young Pope. Yeah, and his kangaroo. Okay. Um, some inventions that uh, appeared at this fair. Um, the wireless telephone or wireless... What? what? 1904? <laughs> You've been hiding it for... What? Uh, it was also called the wireless telephony or telephony unit or radio phone. Oh, wait, yeah, that's just a radio. That fits. Yeah, that's, it's okay. right. But it's... It's, you know, so music or message were transmitted from uh, inside the Palace of Electricity to a receiver in the outside courtyard, which was attached to nothing. Ah, uh, ta-da! Yeah, and the radiophone was invented by Alexander Graham Bell, and it's what went on to be developed into radio and early mobile phones. There you go. So, it's cool stuff. There's also uh, the early form of the fax machine. That was kind of a mistake. We can live without that. <laughs> it was called the Teleautograph. In 1888, uh, American scientist Alicia Gray uh, created something that could send electrical impulses to a receiving pen on a device. In 1900, Gray's assistant, uh, Foster Ritchie, improved on the design, and this was what was displayed at the fair and marketed for the next 30 years. Wow. Yeah. That's a long time for communication technology to go kind of unchanged. Yeah. I'm not used to that. Yeah. Think of where we were 30 years ago. Not born, but, like, in a yeah, general sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fetuses. Fetuses. <laughs> the the Finzen light was on display there. Uh, it was a phototherapy unit invented um, by Niles Ryberg 
Finzen. Um, I wonder how they came up with the name. <laughs> uh, it was an ultraviolet light to treat forms of lupus. Oh. Uh, he was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in 1903, and it led the way for a lot of other forms of radiation therapy, which is pretty cool. Now, did he also bring the prize just to show people, like, hey, hey, uh, uh, may- uh, maybe? Th- this might look like a weird lamp, but it's actually very important. Yeah. Uh, and the x ray machine uh, was on public display there as well. Uh, now, x rays were discovered back in, like, 1895. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just shining it on all the babies <laughs> at the baby check before they gave them their radium pills. <laughs> a German scientist in 1895 uh, was studying um, the phenomena from when, like, electric current passing through uh, low pressure gas and ended up, like, taking an x ray through this. Like, found this mm-hmm. thing out, took an x ray of his wife's hand. And, like, sent this off to other people, like, look at this thing I did! This is crazy! Gentlemen, it seems Wilhelm Röntgen has killed his wife (laughs) and peeled the flesh off her hand. Well, one of the people who, like, got their hands on this picture of a hand was uh, Thomas Edison. And uh, he and his assistant, uh, Clarence Bally, began to experiment. Experiment more with this. Mm-hmm. And in 1901, Daly took uh, a test version of the machine to the 1901 World's Fair, but failed to test the machine because uh, that's where, like, President McKinley was assassinated. <laughs> and I guess, like, when he was, like, gonna be doing stuff, like, he never really got to do it because of when he was supposed to be there. Yeah. So- I'll never forget where I was where McKinley died. Really disappointed for personal reasons. <laughs> well, and like, I'm not totally sure. Like, maybe some of it was seen by people, but it wasn't like, it wasn't able to draw the attention. Mm-hmm. So in 1904, it was displayed and it was very much like seen as kind of like the public display of x rays. Why couldn't the president have suffered some sort of broken bone or something, or I would have shined? Yeah. Uh, we also have uh, infant incubators Yay, again. Baby zoo. Baby zoo. Uh, so we talked about this in the Century of Progress. Uh, and remember, this is before that. Yeah, about uh, 30 years before. Yeah. So same as there, though. They displayed real babies in incubators. There were 10 nurses who cared for about 24 babies. And they charged 25 cents for uh, people to come see. Half uh, the entrance fee of the fair. Yes. A lot of the things had extra costs, which okay. is why I think okay. like it was only fifty cents to like go, but certain things had extra. Yeah, but costs. 50, 50, 1904 cents. You could get like a meal for that. They're having to feed twenty four babies. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's exorbitant for the babies. You know, healthcare costs money. Unfortunately, um, I did read something. Um, I don't know if it was like during this fair. I think it's maybe from incubator babies were displayed for like. Years. Yeah, this is a like, traveling this show. This is a traveling show. Because in the guidebook, it talks about people viewing the babies from behind glass. Now, I don't know if they're talking about the glass on the incubators, but I did read somewhere that around this time is when they were like, people are bringing germs in when they come watch the babies, so we really should put up like some extra glass that they have to stay on that side of it, and we'll all be on this side working with the babies, so the babies stop dying. Oh, no. Yeah, that's a so good plan. my thought is that maybe this happened between the previous, mm-hmm. like, exhibit of wherever they were and this one. 
Perhaps, they, perhaps. But I'm not sure. But around this time is when they're like, whoopsie. We should keep those germs out. Man. Mm. Um, there was also a lot of uh, displays of transportation. So electric streetcars uh, were still very novel at the time. So they had a working streetcar with track and you could like ride it for a little distance and then come back <laughs> well all this acreage anything to save your barking dogs yeah. uh automobiles and motor cars there were 140 different ones on display some powered <laughs> by gas steam electricity about four years later is when the model t finally came out uh mm-hmm. which made it more affordable the fair though was the first time there was like kind of the concept of you could own one of these, but like no one can afford them, and they're like insane. <laughs> right, right. Um, but they were on display there, still, and still at the time when cars were for the frivolous rich people. Yes, and and not, mechanics. Yes, and not like practical. Right. In any sense, like even if you could afford it, it wasn't like a practical thing for you to have. That's why it's frivolous, rich yeah. people. <laughs> yes. Yes. There was also uh, a big push in airplanes. Uh, there was an airship contest. The guidebook says is that uh, recognizing the progress made towards solving the problems of aerial navigation and the possibility, if not the probability, of remarkable achievements in the air, the exposition has offered a grand prize of $100,000 to the airship, which shall make the best record over a prescribed course. And they, the plan was to have stationary air balloons that they had to travel around, and they had to go at least 15 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. No one ran, won the grand prize. <laughs> but it was a huge event. It drew a lot of uh, people's interest. There was a lot of innovation that was being done for mm-hmm. it, but no, no one won. So you're telling me they got electric cars, they got wireless phones, mm-hmm. and they can't fly around a dang balloon? Oh, the past is so inspiring. <laughs> and now we get to the main event of the World's Fair. Not really the main event. The main event for me. Okay. Uh, sure. Our prompt really has to do with this. Yeah. We, we gave out an Olympic prompt. Mm-hmm. And we are going to talk about the 1904 Olympics now. And at the beginning of the episode, when I was trying to prompt you to think of summer sports, yeah, I know what you're going for, but I wasn't going to talk. Segue. I wasn't going to talk about the Olympics till now, so it didn't make any sense. All right, cool. <laughs> so tell me all about okay, it. Okay, okay. So 1904 Olympics was the first time uh, the Olympics were held in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were the third of the modern Olympics. Right. Uh, now, originally, uh, Chicago had won the bid for these Olympics. Uh, but <laughs> And they'll never get it again. <laughs> no. um, anyway, so they originally had the bid, but the fair organizers were so not down with that. <laughs> uh, now, they planned their own international sports event that would be happening during the fair that would... Uh, basically eclipsed the game unless it moved. They were like, mm, we're going to be doing this thing. So, like, if you want anyone to pay attention to your Olympics, <laughs> you better bring it over here because our games are going to be so much better. The The Olympic Committee was like, fine, fine, Close take it. Close enough. Um, and so Chicago was booted out and they were given to St. Louis. Now, a lot of this probably also came from... Uh, 
the inspiration from St. Louis, I'm sure it came from the fact that the 1900 Summer Olympics took place uh, in Paris, which was during the World's Fair, the last one also happening there. Mm-hmm. But it's very silly that the Olympic Committee was like, yeah, this is a great idea, because it's known that the 1900 Olympics were very much overshadowed by other events at the fair. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why they like, sure, let's do that again. <laughs> but... Whatever. The 1904 Olympics were not great. Well, because Michael Phelps hadn't been born yet, (laughs) so who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were very poorly attended Mm -hmm. by athletes. (laughs) Like, and part of that is St. Louis is not easy to get to Mm -hmm. in 1904. Chicago, way easier to get to. Yeah. 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 Uh, and also there was uh, a lot of European tension at the time due to the Russo-Japanese War. <laughs> so only 62 of the 650 people who competed were from outside North America. USA! USA! And of those 62, they were only like, well, like, overall, like a dozen nations were represented. <laughs> like, that's it. The world comes together. In a manner of speaking. So it's like 80% of competitors are from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, in over half the events, it was only U.S. people. And so we'll they're... never match that medal count again. <laughs> yeah, it was like 42 of the 94 recognized sports included people not from here, like mm-hmm. from the States. The, the president of the f- fair, uh, David R. Francis, opened the games himself in, in May with a very short... And, like, hardly attended ceremony. So that just put it off to a great start. Like I no wish we'd came. go back to that. Yeah. At least the short part, because <laughs> I got a bedtime. It does go on for, like, five hours. <laughs> the games officially took place from, like, July to November, <laughs> with, like, sporting events very spread out. Which is very common for how they used to be. Like, it was over months and months. Mm-hmm. Maybe the the... Opening ceremony was so poorly attended because they knew we wouldn't be doing any sports for two months. Yeah. What did he even open? Well, and then it's weird, though, because then they had, like, from August 29th to September 3rd, they had, like, a bajillion, like, track and field type events going on. It was like, the Olympics are right now. (laughs) But then everything else was just kind of sprinkled throughout. And it gets really confusing because the fair was having all these extra sports programs happen. Mm -hmm. And, like, it gets really confusing about what is an Olympic thing and what is not. (laughs) The guidebook says, by a decision of the International Olympic Committee, all sports and competitions during the World's Fair are designated as Olympic events. With the exception of competitions of the championships of local associations. So you could have, like, Olympic darts as long as you weren't crowning the, like, St. Louis Darts Association champion. Technically. That, according to the guidebook copy, which may not be the the rule of law, but yeah. yeah. The the sentence there of uh, all sports and competitions, which I'm going to say is really what it seems like the fair rolled with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Olympic pie-eating contests. They called all athletes Olympians. Across all the sports. Olympic three-legged race, all the good fair time Um, fun. There's actually a lot of confusion among, like, historians, like, of just trying to, like, was this considered a thing? Was 
why are they calling it this? It was very messy. And the fair people obviously wanted everything to be considered an Olympic thing because it's a bigger draw then. Right, for sure. Collect them quarters. <laughs> now, uh, some sports that did make their debut uh, was boxing. Um, cool. Dumbbells. Not around anymore. Freestyle wrestling. Yep. And the decathlon. Three out of four ain't bad. Um, now, the fair held their anthropology days. Uh-huh. This was not an Olympic thing. This was not part of the Olympic programming. But as we said, there's a very, like, blurred line of the fair calling things, like, Olympic. And from August August 12th, August 13th, they had anthropology days. It was where indigenous men from around the world, a.k.a. 100 men from the exhibits that they have set up throughout the fairgrounds, mm-hmm. Compete in the events for anthropologists to compare them to white men. Clearly the best men. We all know this. Uh, Now we can thank William John McGee and James Edward Sullivan for this. Sullivan was the chief organizer for the 1904 Olympics. uh, And he was very interested in showing the world that the American method of scientific training was the best for athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he wanted to prove this. And McGee was an anthropologist who believed white people to be the highest level of men's enlightenment, and that some indigenous groups were subhuman. Now, if he ever met, like, someone with albinism, would he just immediately worship them as, as a god? Because they're that white? The, the whitest they can be. I would love for him to answer that question. <laughs> So, yeah, those are the people in charge of this. Now, competitors that, you know, aren't white Mm -hmm. uh, were not asked directly to compete. Instead, uh, they had, like, various random staff people go and, like, recruit people. They were not paid for their time. Mm -hmm. They were not given time to practice these sports. In most cases, they were shown what to do right before they were supposed to do it in the competition. (laughs) Uh, And most of them, you know did not know English, and they were not provided with interpreters. Sure. Uh, they were only given one chance to, like, compete at something. Many of them were like, okay, I got it now. I want to do it again. I understand. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, no, no. No, no take-backs, no do-overs. The, the organizers thought this would violate the research and racial comparison, you uh-huh. know, from something someone's never done to a white dude that's trained for this his whole life. Yes. That's a great comparison. We're going to compare uh, this guy. He probably has a name. I don't care to ask. Uh, who's just been shown a basketball. Yep. <laughs> to my good friend Joe, who's been playing semi-professional ball for the last four years. Yeah. Go! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, the way this worked is first they competed against others of their Race, I say this very loosely because mm-hmm. I'm sure they did not actually divide people properly among their cultural. Well, I mean, that, <laughs> the, the boundaries of race are a, con, a contested thing and have been over the last yes. 110 years. Yes. Well, I mean, like, it's a social construct. People of their, from their country or background, like, yeah. I'm sure people were getting clumped together in ways where, like, no, we're not even from the same continent, you idiot. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> So first they had to compete there. But that guy's an expert, so you can yeah. trust his judgment. Well, and so that was to figure out what they called the fastest primitive. <laughs> and then those went on to compete against the white dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that just went on with, with 
various sports. Things did not go very well in many cases, but there were certain, like, events that did not go the way that the organizers thought it would. I and then imagine they, like, those are things like sprints or things that, like, don't take a lot of explanation. Yeah. Right? This guy makes a noise, you run to that point. Yeah. Well, so the organizers, because they were using this as, like, research in some ways, definitely, like, hid some of those results. <laughs> um, and there's certain other things where not e- even outside of the anthropology days where some of the sporting events there were like um but it was there was a girl sporting event like team sporting event mm-hmm. and it it was outside of this but they the one group did really well and was like oh can't have that because <laughs> they're not white so we're gonna just not talk about that happening mm-hmm. you know how science works yeah 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 and and of course you know Again, these people were referred to, like, as Olympians, mm-hmm. which and often get people very confused about what is happening. And also the, the deepest savages of the Borneo yeah. jungle. Yeah. During uh, the 1904 Olympics, there was also, like, the worst marathon in history. <laughs> oh, I'm, there's a lot of stories about this marathon um, that have even been shared on this show before. Yes, yes. We've had many uh, people th- talk to us, actually, about the 1904 Olympics and specifically this marathon. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the prompt that led into the Cubs episode is probably where you find it. Several several people mm-hmm. going quite, quite a ways back. Yeah. The marathon took place on uh, hot, dusty roads that, like, they sent horses and some cars out to like clear the way of people, which mm-hmm. you know, created more dust. An extremely hot day. It's like 90 mo- or ninety degrees outside. Mm-hmm. That's bad enough as it is. It's 90 <laughs> degrees. Sullivan. Training man. Scientific American yes. athlete training man. And, and like organizer of the games. Right. Tried to kill people. He's just Doing... trying to recreate the historical marathon. Yeah. Where the guy shows up, says we won and falls down dead. Yeah, pretty much, because he was conducting research on purposeful dehydration. (laughs) And he only allowed two water stations to be set in 24.85 miles. Not a real marathon, but sure. Not not correct, like, distance. Maybe it was back then. Only 14 of the 32 people running finished. Mm -hmm. It had the official slowest winning time of a marathon, which was like three hours... 28 minutes and 45 seconds. That's my 5K, actually. That's, that's it's probably my half, my half marathon time. But, like, Frederick Lors uh, arrived at the finish line first. Hooray! But he had dropped out at mile nine, <laughs> uh, rode in a car for most of the way, then broke down at mile 19. And he was like, oh, I feel better. I guess I'll, like, at least finish it out. Let me jog to the end. And they're like, yay, you won! And he just went along with it. Until they found out shortly after the medal ceremony that he, like... Cheated. Cheated. He rode a car for half a marathon. Uh, So he was banned from competing. But then, like, a year later, he's like, oh, I was it was just temporary insanity. And then, like, he competed again. <laughs> Have you met this Sullivan guy? You'd go nuts, too. Now, Thomas Hicks was the first to cross legally. But this was after he got uh several 
doses of rat poison mixed with egg whites and then like washed down with brandy along the way from his trainers. That's the breakfast of champions uh, right there. He cross-supported by his trainers, which was still considered winning. Uh, was, <laughs> they didn't want to wait another three hours for another guy. He was carried off the tracks and uh, treated by doctors immediately. And if that wouldn't happen, he probably would have died. <laughs> so he's he's the winner. Um, but we also have uh, Felix Coverhall, who uh, joined the, like, signed up at the last minute. Uh, uh, I heard you guys are doing an Olympics over here. Is there any way I can get in on that? Uh, he, he ran in street clothes. Like cut mm-hmm. cut cut them kind of short, like his pants like into shorts. Uh, he stopped at an apple orchard along the way and uh, ate an apple, but it was rotten, so he felt sick, took mm-hmm. a nap, and then got up and finished and came in fourth place. <laughs> the first two black uh, Africans to compete uh, in the Olympics. Now you say that these are the most racist Olympics. They had two Olympics without any black people. <laughs> Uh, At least not from Africa. Apparently. So, hey, ch- check yourself, Paris and Athens. It's more so talking of, like, the anthropology <laughs> days aren't technically a part of the Olympics. Okay, I mean, yeah. yeah. More so talking about the World's Fair being really racist, but I'm sure the Olympics were. Yeah. They um, were being run by these two freaks. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. But one of these two freaks. Um. So they were two Swana tribesmen who were there as part of... One of the exhibits, mm-hmm. Len Tao, whose real name was Len Tao Nyane. Uh, he finished ninth, and then uh, Yamazani came in 12th. Len Tao probably would have done better, but he was chased off the track for about a mile by an aggressive dog. <laughs> um, so it's still really good that he finished ninth, even with going an extra mile that he shouldn't have. <laughs> you get a bonus medal for that. Yeah. It's a little guy that's holding up the regular medal. Uh, so that's just some of the stuff that happened at the marathon. A few other, uh, sporting, uh, facts for this is, uh, uh, as I said, boxing, uh, appeared for the first time. One of the, uh, fighters, uh, James Bollinger entered under, uh, name of a popular local boxer named Carol Burton. He won, uh, one match before he was disqualified when they figured out that that was not him. Uh. (laughs) Why lie? They're letting anybody in. Just used your own name. Uh, tug of War was a part of the track and field competition. Uh, this was actually the case from 1900 to 1920. <laughs> uh, six uh, five-men teams competed in 1904. One from Greece, one from South Africa, and four from the U.S. <laughs> uh, South Africa and Greece lost in the first round. Then the one of the U.S. teams from New York didn't show up, and thus the other three won. Hooray! <laughs> First, second, and third. I would love to hear tales <laughs> of the Olympic champions of tug of war. No women competed in one official event, which was archery. Uh, there were six contestants, five of which were all from the Cincinnati Archers Club. <laughs> uh, now, women also um, had Olympic boxing bouts. But they were considered display events only. Was it like Foxy Boxing? Was it like Luann in in, uh, that episode of King of the Hill? Uh, But it would be 108 years until women boxed in the Olympics again. Uh, And now this is my favorite, my favorite Olympic sport that I did not know existed. Yeah? The plunge for distance. (laughs) Uh, It was an Olympic sport that year and only that year. 
you basically dive off a stationary platform into the water and glide for like 60 seconds. And then like, oh, you went this far. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's it. That's all there is to it. I want to imagine the version that's, instead of water, just a big pit of sand. Just go. <laughs> um, it was also the last time golf was in the Olympics until 2016. These things are finally making you know. a comeback. There's hope for plunge for distance in tug of war. Yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> I really want them to bring back plunge for distance. One time, one time only in the Olympics. Uh, George Iser uh, won uh, six gymnastic medals. Mm -hmm. Uh, he had a prosthetic leg after being run over as a train by a train as a child. Did he manage to keep his feet together on the landing or did he not do his routines with the leg on? I think he did. All right. Cause you would, you would have to for like certain stuff for the like leverage to get off on. You'd think? I don't know specifically. I mean, they make it a point to talk about how he has a prosthetic leg. They don't talk about how he, like, took it off to do stuff. So, George, if you're listening to the episode, (laughs) I want you to write in and tell us your life story. So if your ghost is out there. If your ghost. Uh, Now, I want to talk about one other event that Uh did not have to do with the Olympics. Kind of have to do with the fair. It wasn't really actually, I don't think, like, an actual part of the fair either. But it was one of those events. This is the thing they disavowed after all of that. Whatever you're about to tell me is too much for the fair. From what I understand, I think it's one of those things that, like, sets up shop outside the fairgrounds. Mm -hmm. But, like, just tags along. Sure. On June 5th, 1904, there was a bullfight riot. Bullfight riot is the name of my ska band? (laughs) Yeah. So, promoter Richard Norris advertised a bullfight for that night. He had built a 16,000-seat arena, signed Spanish bullfighter uh, Don Emmanuel Sabera, and 35 others uh, were in contract to, like, work this event. Fight them bulls. So, bullfighting was illegal in the U.S. and Missouri. (laughs) Was. The two places this happened. The two places this happened. Totally illegal. Uh, Norris sold $8,000 tickets. You could get into the fair twice for that. (laughs) Now, the show did start with a horsemanship demo, uh, a lacrosse demonstration. How good are the bulls at lacrosse? (laughs) And just as uh, they were coming out to to introduce uh, the bullfight, the sheriff came out and announced that the fight was not permitted. The crowd began to throw rocks. Uh, and the sheriff, uh, took the organizer, like, to the office, and they they were inside there, and people were pissed, because they were finding out that they weren't gonna get a refund. hmm Now, the crowd started to fill into the arena, and there they found three emaciated bulls, and because, Who you know- just happened? They, these the- were bulls just passing by. <laughs> They, they wanted to see the, the flexed arm hang or yeah. whatever nonsense they were calling a sport. So the crowd sees these bulls that are not looking very good. <laughs> also, who are not aggressive at all to the crowd. And they're like, this was a scam. Yeah. We weren't going to see a bull fight. Of course it's a scam. It's the 1904 <laughs> World's Fair. It's just a bunch of flim. Fl- they're holding the walls up with hemp fiber, you <laughs> fools. Uh, so a fire started. Oh, I guess there is a fire. We <laughs> yeah, have a fire. A fire started, and uh, quickly the whole place caught uh, and completely burned down. Uh, two days later, Sabera was uh, killed by a fellow bullfighter, Carlton 
Bass when they fought over payment for the aborted fight. Well, I'm glad something died. That's what the bullfight's for. <laughs> That's some of the events around this fair. And I do want to end uh, talking about the song Meet Me in St. Louis that is featured in the movie Meet, Meet Me in me St. In- Louis that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> you don't say. Now, this song was not written for that movie. I always thought it was. I learned something. I always thought it was, too, until I did this. Uh, It was written by Andrew B. Sterling with music by Carrie Mills. It was published in 1904. Oh. Uh, So it was like actual tie-in promotional business. Yeah. like It it was written about the fair, published that year, and it was recorded by many artists that year. And then, of course, it went on to be in the movie and be like a focal point song of it. What I also did not know is that they only sing, like, a little tiny bit of the song. They totally edited it out for that movie. Mm-hmm. It is so long. It is an incredibly long song. I found um, one of the recordings from 1904, Ooh. someone singing it. But even that is edited. It does not have all eight verses in it. It the, only has, like, four. The, the wax <laughs> cylinder can only play for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to uh, link that video but I highly suggest you go to, like, the Wikipedia page for it and look up, like, the entire song lyrics. It's also really weird. It's a weird song. Are there any verses about the anthropological village and about how these these strange foreigners from lands beyond think they're people? Or... No. It's just about, like, this dude having a strange day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, he wanted to see a bullfight, but then he caught fire, and it's a pretty strange day. But but check it out. Uh, it's quite interesting. But yeah, so that's that's what I got about the World's Fair. So, darling, did you learn anything? I I really thought that was a product of, like, the MGM studio lot, the, the song. No, it it's wasn't. Not. It wasn't. It, there's so much more to that song. Like, I thought, like, the Meet Me in St. Louis, like... Chorus? Mm-hmm. I thought that was really, like, it for this. Like, that was it. <laughs> that is not. They leave out, like, all the verses. Because of the notable train wreck that is uh, uh, the anthropological exhibits and the Olympics and the fact that they went hand in hand, I've this, this is one of the oddities of history that I, I was pretty familiar with. Yes. It's Hearing good, it all at once. It's good to be reminded... Yeah, and I'm really interested to look at the the primary sources you you uh, looked up instead of these twice told tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition, there there's going to be a link for uh, like a daily program I found mm-hmm. that was scanned, and also I found uh, an interactive uh, map. Oh, I love interactive it's like maps. A overlay map. It's done really well. Uh huh. And you can see like where stuff used to exist over what currently is in St. Louis. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll be linking all those. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with some mail. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hello. Yeah. Uh, we've got a bunch of great letters from everybody. Our prompt leading into this episode was people's favorite Olympic sport and or moment. Yes. 
And so what do we got? Uh, Andrew sent us an email with favorite Olympic sport being curling. Uh, back during the Nagano Olympics, Andrew ended up uh, sick, stuck in a resort uh, while on a trip and uh, spent half of it watching the Olympics. And since he was in Canada, there was a lot of curling and got really into it and looks forward to it now every Winter Olympics. Curling uh, is not a joke. That's a real sport curling, for cool people. Curling's cool. Yeah. I would curl. Andrew also answers a previous prompt. Uh, favorite thing from 2017 was the part on planet Earth 2 where a newborn iguana escapes from a pit full of razor snakes. Remember that? You saw that, right? No. Oh, that's right. You couldn't watch. I don't watch any animal documentary because I cannot handle it. <laughs> well, this one has a happy ending. I know, but I never know if they're going to. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Claritic writes back in, and her favorite Olympic moment is also uh, from the Winter Olympics, specifically Australia's first ever Winter Olympics gold medalist, Steve Bradbury, in the 1,000-meter speed skating back in Salt Lake City, 2002. Uh, it's a riveting race that uh, she doesn't trust herself to describe properly, so everybody just go ahead and, and check out the video of that. It's a heck of a race. But she and her dad went to the Australian Sporting Museum uh, just a few weeks ago and was extremely happy to find Bradbury's uniform being proudly displayed. He seems like a real humble guy, considering he won Australia's first Winter Olympic medal and proves that you can be a winner by screwing up just a little less than everybody else <laughs> around you. <laughs> Thanks, Claritic. Uh, Final Gamer sent us an email with uh, favorite Olympic sport uh, being the first... Uh, debut of women's boxing. Well, well official, official medal-winning debut. Not the 1904 mm -hmm. unofficial debut. <laughs> the official debut. It's honestly the only sport that uh, has gripped them so much that they have watched it every year since it started, which is like two years, but still. Not just every year, but every match. <laughs> well, every match, yes. So a favorite Olympic moment uh, then is when Nicola Adams from the UK won gold in 2020. 12's women's flyweight boxing division become not only the first women to ever win an Olympic boxing title, but the first openly LGBT boxer to ever win gold at the Olympics. Nicola Adams has a, apparently has a, a Rocky style story of, <laughs> of uh, punching meat, growing just up always punching meat. and, and rising to become an incredible boxer with a 22 year career and inspiring many. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So thanks, Final Gamer. I'm really excited for all the married couples in the the women's hockey tournament coming yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's cute. I think I read recently one of them had a baby. Oh, which made me automatically go, "Are you both still competing?" <laughs> like, because it was it was only like a month ago. So I was mm -hmm. like, "Oh, oh, you guys are gonna be tired." <laughs> it's gotta be like annoying timing. Yeah. Well, but they can do it. They can do it. Thanks, Final Gamer. Super hockey players. Purin uh, would have written about the 1904 marathon, but he's the person that did way back when. Like the first time. The, the first, first person. time, months ago. <laughs> but instead, he's going to talk about the, the 1976 gymnastic competition in Montreal. Uh, Sean Fujimoto, uh, uh, a member of the 
Japanese men's gymnastics team broke his kneecap during an exercise in the morning. The medal race was neck and neck and the stakes were high as Japan was facing down the Soviet Union. If he dropped out, Japan would never get the, the points they needed to win. So he kept on going on his broken kneecap. Uh, he did a pommel horse routine with a 9.5. Uh, he, he tried speaking with a doctor to like at least get him some painkillers, but that was against Olympic rules. That That's a substance you cannot have in your bloodstream in the Olympics. So he did it all without. Then he did uh, the, the, the rings, uh, just flipping and flopping, spinning around, flinging his broken knee uh, ahead of himself, eight feet in the air, and he needs a high score. So he goes out to perform his routine, play through the pain. The final move was a triple twisting somersault jump. That was his dismount. He landed clean, got a 9.7 out of 10, his personal best, dislocating that knee on the way down, also tearing a ligament, and the Japanese team won gold, uh, beating the Soviet Union by 0.4 points. Dang! He refused assistance as he climbed onto the podium to receive his medal under his own power. That dude! Whoa! Thanks, Porin. Uh, Rich sent us an email answering a couple prompts. Uh, favorite detective, Angus McDonald, uh, boy detective from the Adventure Zone. Uh, favorite thing from 2017, the birth of third child, Ezra. Uh, and we got a really nice, uh, picture attached. Oh, you got a sweet looking kid. And other kids as well. All of them. All of them. Yeah. Uh, And favorite Olympic moment is also Stephen Bradbury winning the 2002 Olympic gold. And how did Stephen Bradbury, we danced around it. After being in last, uh, and then like everyone else fell. (laughs) (laughs) And no longer in last. Yeah, he just skated around everybody who slipped and and crashed into one another. Yeah, sometimes it's okay to be at the back of the pack. It's safer there. You can like see what's happening and then just. Jump. Keep going. So thanks, Rich. Uh, Alex and Faye write in again, uh, also catching up on a few prompts, including a best of 2017 moment that's very similar to one of ours. They adopted a cat, Freddy. It sounds like Freddy is a rescue who's who's gained some weight and gained some friendliness and is Aww. now just a big sweetheart. Uh, also, over the summer, they saw uh, the, the World Para-Athletics Championships in London and watched Paralympian Johnny Peacock get a championship record time in the 100 meters. And speaking of Olympic running, Faye's great-grandfather was a sprinter uh, in the 100-yard dash back before we all went metric in the, the 1919 Inter-Allied Games and nearly competed in the 1920 Antwerp Olympics. Uh, He got the season's best time, second only to the fastest man alive in 1920. But there was no financial support for competitors, so he couldn't go because he couldn't pay his own way to Antwerp. Despite running faster than the the UK Olympian who Mm. did go, because that guy could, could pay for the trip. So thanks for your letter. And thank you to everybody who wrote uh, to us for this episode. Uh, if you'd like to have your letter read on the air, those can go to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. And so we love hearing your, your prompt responses, your show suggestions, your questions, your comments. 
uh, corrections on on rare occasions. Thankfully, rare. We do a pretty okay job. I, I, we try. I try. We I try. try. Uh, <laughs> I'm always like, oh man, I so messed up on something. Probably mostly pronunciation of things. It's hard. <laughs> I don't even speak very well normally. We know. It's okay. It's we okay. love you. So, do you have a prompt for us? Yeah. Uh, for our next episode coming out in two weeks, I would like to hear everybody's favorite activist. Okay. Come on. Don't you have a favorite activist? No, but I'm sure I could come up with one. Okay. And again, uh, if you have, if you want to respond to that prompt or do any of the other things I said and would like to uh, hear it on the air, that's historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a rating or review. Yeah, those help so much. Uh, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, etc. Uh, we, we love seeing those numbers tick up, uh, but we also love knowing that it helps us get found by people. We, we've gotten a number of people getting in touch with us like, hey, I just stumbled across your show, and I really like it. And those ratings and reviews are the reasons they're stumbling. Yeah, you make that happen, and mm -hmm. we thank you so much. Yes. Uh, you can also tell a friend. Tell your family. Tell your barista. <laughs> tell whoever you see. Word of mouth is a great way to... Uh, Spread uh, us around. Yeah, just... Like the flu! Don't get the flu. <laughs> Everyone I know has the flu, I feel like, right now. Yeah, t tell the uh, medical technician giving you your flu vaccine. Yeah. Uh, tell the person who works at the animal shelter where you adopted your fluffy kitty. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, these are the relationships you want to help, you know, strengthen. And, and uh, a strong community... Uh, is is something we could really use right about now. Yeah. 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 Uh, something we mentioned last episode happened. We were on the One Shot live stream uh, with the gracious host uh, James D'Amato, who also brought Liz Anderson, one of my favorite One Shot contributors. Mm -hmm. uh, and we played Running Round Riverdale, a very simple, kid-friendly Archie licensed board game. Yes. The link to the recording of that stream is in the show notes. We had a fantastic time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Catching people up on what's happening with the Archie characters in the Riverdale world and also creating our own episode. That's right. We played two rounds. The first round was pretty straight. And the second, we we made Riverdale fan fiction out of our, our board game moves. Yes. And that was a dream. Yeah. But this whole event was part of OneShot's Neo Year fundraiser, uh, raising money for Trans Lifeline microgrants. Uh, this is a program that helps trans people with, well, microgrants, small uh, donations of money straight to people who need it. Mm -hmm. Things like the, the cash needed to legally change your name or get an ID with your real name on it. Yes. Things that go to, like, purchasing binders or uh, just minor, well, nothing, nothing's minor when you're talking yeah. about healthcare, but just... Purchasing things... The, uh, the little things that make your day go right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so we'll also have a link to their fundraising page, because we're, we're really glad to help out with that. Mm -hmm. But speaking of sex archie things, the show is back. Uh, they air tomorrow. Yes. And so you'll hear us uh, in, on that show immediately after. Yes, so you should check that out as well. Mm -hmm. I'm Brent. And I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.